Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and most merciful Father, we pray that you would help us to turn our eyes from looking at worthless things, that you would give us life in your ways, that we'd look towards Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that you would confirm to us what you have promised in your word as we seek to be able to worship you and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, turn us away from the approach of the dread, but turn us to your rules which provide life and give us life through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. This is God's holy, inerrant, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. The Christian life is an interesting journey. In one sense that we call ourselves saints. We are justified. We are seen in, by God the Father as if we have lived the perfect sinless life that Christ has lived. There's no doubting that. But as we look out amongst the congregation, as you know, maybe of other Christians that you know of, you understand that they although called saints, are not quite done yet. God is still working on them. Although they show likenesses to Christ, their Savior, as they grow in their maturity, you still see images of their old self, faults and flaws, cracks, There's a t-shirt that one of our children wear, and it says, be patient, God's still working on me. Be patient, God's still working on me. What a glorious truth that is that we have. As we live amongst a community and a church, we are called to be patient as God works on each and every one of us. And tonight, we see that reality put into words. 
And tonight's passage teaches us, as one commentator put it, we work because God works. We work because God works. Or to expand that a little bit more, we work our salvation because God works for his purposes. That's what you see here in the first uh, two verses of what we read, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you always, uh, have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but more, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we come to a passage like this that we need to remember there's not only the words that are before us, but it's also the words that were before this. We need to understand this section. And you see that very clearly even in the first word, therefore, that Paul has made an argument, therefore this is what you must do. As he spelled out in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this mind, which Paul is pointing the church in Philippi to, is Christ's humiliation. How Christ came down and humbled himself. So too we should have this mindset of Christ in his humiliation. But not merely just in humiliation, but also understanding the exaltation of Christ. Where he sits enthroned and rules over his church and his people. That he is now exalted above every other name. That every knee should bow, every tongue confess. This mind that helps the church be united in this time as they seek to live humbly and walk like Christ walked, but also give all glory and honor to Christ and long for that transportation in which they are exalted. They are glorified. But not merely just what has come before, also the overall section as we have spelled out in this time here, the church, although quite uh, a good church, the almost perfect church, it still has issues. And one of the issues in this church is that division of disagreement. Eutyka and Syndike, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul encourages them and exhorts them to agree in the Lord. Your names are recorded in Scripture for this disagreement in which they were having. And so Paul is encouraging the whole church in Philippi to have the same mind that is theirs in Christ Jesus, to agree in the Lord. As he spells out in verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord, and of one mind. There's division in the church, and here Paul is encouraging them to be able to move forward. And this helps us when we come to our passage tonight. That we see in all of this section is driving us towards unity in different aspects of our lives. That we are to have unity as we work out our salvation, as God works in us for His good pleasure. The first thing that we see in this passage is that we are to work out our salvation, to be able to work out our salvation. We see that clearly in verse 12, as he encourages this beloved church in which he has a long-standing relationship with, 
He says, work out your own salvation. Now, if we really merely were to read this, you can either go two different ways that a lot of people go. This means we need to work really hard, do all that we can, put all of our human energy and, uh, and will and, and all these things in to be able to make sure that we are saved. Or you can go the other way and people just say, well, that's not what Paul's saying at all. But a couple of things that can help us with this passage that aren't necessarily quite clear in the English, and mainly because the English does not really have a formal word that helps us. When Paul is speaking here, he is not speaking to an individual. He's speaking to the church. Work out your, plural, salvation. He's speaking to the church at a whole. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to individuals. But often what we see here is we come to this with an individual mindset. that we need to, I need to work out my own salvation. Whereas Paul is here addressing the corporate body of believers. I don't think there's even an informal word here. You're all, as you would say, you're y'all, but with uh, possessiveness to it. But it's not one person. It's the church together. Then this helps us understand a broader meaning than rather a very specific limited meaning. Then it comes not up to individuals to be able to seek to do what they want. The Christian life is not merely about me and my Bible that I'm going to work out my own salvation. You've got your own salvation over there. I'm going to be by myself. But together as a church, what's that common union as Jude writes that he sought to be able to write to them about their common salvation? What unites them and ties them together? Growing and maturing more like Christ day to day, having that same mind of Christ. But often when we think about salvation, we think in a very limited, single-person scope. But often the, the view of the Bible is not merely just it's individualistic. But the church is a body of believers that a herd is not a cow, a litter is not a kitten, a murder is not a crow, a school is not a single fish, that the church is the plural of believers. And we can overemphasize the individual aspect Especially in the West, we often do this. But there's great unity that can be found when we merge together, when we seek to be able to encourage one another in our salvation, in our walk. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 said, Let us consider how we may stir one another on to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some in the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We can stir one another up. Now some of us are really good at stirring each other, stirring the pot. That's not what he's saying. To love and good works. To be able to encourage one another. We see the day drawing near. So the first thing is understanding that this is speaking about the church. who involves individuals, but broadly speaking. But secondly, the thing that helps us understand this passage is also the concept of the word salvation. 
Often when we think about the word salvation, we merely think in the words and terminology of the big category that we would call justification. However, salvation is not merely the act of justification. That moment when you believed, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, Salvation is much more of a broader sense when it comes to understanding how the Bible uses that terminology. It's broader than that past time in our lives when we receive that Christ's righteousness. Salvation can come in different tenses. Do we have been saved? Justification. We are being saved? Sanctification. And we will be saved, glorification. That is the whole truth of the gospel applied to a believer's life. Not merely just a moment. Paul in Romans chapter 13. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So here, salvation is speaking of that glorification that we have not reached salvation yet. Now, is he saying that the church in Rome is not saved? No, he says, well, when you believed, when you had faith. That, that term salvation there is a broader sense of speaking of that time to come. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For you're all children of life, children of day. We are not of the night, but of darkness. Or of the darkness. For then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, or that we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And again, but to obtain salvation, salvation is not something that they have. And he's not saying, again, you're not justified. What he's saying is salvation is something of a broader word than that moment in which you believed. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. And by God's power, you have been guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. Salvation is not then revealed at that point. So again, salvation is not merely just justification, but sanctification, glorification. Now when we understand this, we then understand maybe how then we can work out our salvation, plural, as a church, and encourage one another. Encourage one another as we work it out through sanctification, as we encourage one another with the hope of glorification. But before we get of how Paul speaks to the church in Philippi, of how we are to do this, we need to understand who he is talking about. Are we to work? Or is God going to work? What does the Bible say? The Bible says you are to work it out. And some people put this in a category and say, and they end up doing an immense amount of backflips to be able to switch and change the meaning of what this clearly says. It says you believers as a church are to work out your salvation. 
But that doesn't go with many of the sayings that we hear. Well, let just let go and let God. Well, Jesus, you take the wheel. J.I. Packer explains that sanctification is not mystical passivity, as if you use the slogan, let go and let God, as often too, uh, too often implied. But it is active moral effort energized by prayerful and expectant faith. It's not merely just sitting back and just saying, God, you, you do it all. Paul specifically says, you work it out. Who works? We work. Now, that doesn't change what this means, because Paul helps us later in verse 13. But Paul specifically says that here the church needs to work out their salvation. Well, how do you do that? Paul in Philippians chapter 2 gives us two reasons. We're to work at our salvation First, by obeying, with the presence or with absence. Here Paul encourages the church in Philippi and says, you are already doing this. Just as you have always obeyed, continue to obey. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ, God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or as Jesus commands and instructs his disciples, as he ascends up into heaven, he gives them all authority to be able to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, but also to teach them to observe all that I have commanded them. That a part of discipleship is seeking to be able to come underneath the reign and rule of Christ. Again, this is where context helps us. This is what Paul had just said in Christ's exaltation, in his rule and his reign. Not only Christ came as Savior, but he also came as Lord. That every knee will confess, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so too in our salvation, we seek to be able to obey the one who has saved us. Again, we know this connection here Paul has with this church. He says, my beloved. He has a deep, long-standing relationship. And he says, continue to obey even if I'm not there. Continue to obey God's words and follow him even if I'm not here. The teachers are helpful, but they're only helpful in what they point you to, the Word of God, to be able to carry out His purposes, His will. And Paul says here, continue to obey. Follow God's way. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave that God, the king's highway and follow our own ways and paths. But continue to walk on that path. The second thing that he says is there to work out their salvation is to work it out with fear and trembling. It says right at the latter half of verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Here this concept of fear and trembling is, is not merely shaking in your boots, unsure of an irrational God and knowing how He's going to deal with you this day. This fear and trembling comes in, in a sense of idea of worship and adoration. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, it says, All things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Again, great adoration comes when we understand Christ's exaltation and we seek to be able to glorify Him, understanding His power and His might. And the warnings in Scripture are there for a reason. It's not those that are truly saved are lost. It's those who are lost who think they're truly saved. And they're not. We're told in John chapter 6 that Christ is sent by the Father to be able to gather up all of his sheep. That Christ would not lose anything that the Father had given to him. But he would raise them all up on that last day. But the danger is not those who think they are saved and their merely acknowledgement or thought they are saved. The danger is thinking you're saved and you're not. Matthew chapter 7 explains that dismal day when the Lord, there are many people that stand before the Lord. And Jesus begins by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, does not mean that you enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many things and mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Their fault is, is not passion. Their fault is not works. Their fault is not um, seeking to be able to um, do things possibly with a right heart. But here, their problem is that Christ does not know them. Or in James, he warns them and says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. That these warnings are in Scripture for us to be able to heed those warnings and make sure that we are looking to Christ through faith. Not looking to works and seeking, oh, we will obtain it if merely we just prophesy in Christ's name. If merely we cast out demons or do mighty works, then that is the bar that reaches us to heaven. That you can be in a state where you think you are a believer, but merely you are deceiving yourself. And Paul says, work it out with fear and trembling, reverence and awe. But also there's great comfort in this verse because it does not merely stop at verse 12. that we find merely the verse later, great comfort. Just as some people seek to be able to make this verse in verse 12 say the opposite, so too many deny what the other side is saying. One says, well, we don't 
need to do anything. God will take care of it all. The other side says, we need to work really hard. Synergism, we need to work together with God. Or else no one's saved. But we work because God works. That's the second thing we see in this passage, that we are being worked on by God in us. It's what he says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work because God works. As Paul had said to the church in Philippi earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, that Paul is sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God starts, he finishes. Before our regeneration, we were unable to do anything other than what our nature allowed us to do. That nature inherited from Adam and and that life of sin and misery, that's all that we could seek to be able to accomplish. That's all the work that we could do. There is no way we could work out our salvation. We couldn't do it with fear and trembling. We couldn't do it by obeying. But the great truth of the gospel is not merely that there's this external proclamation, as Jesus said in chapter 7. Lord, Lord, they said the right words. But the issue was not them knowing the Lord. The issue was the Lord knowing them. And the great truth is it's not merely about this external proclamation, but an inward transformation. That God is the one who gives us that new heart. He says in Ezekiel 36, And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of a stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. What a glorious truth that is, that not merely says that you will be working it out, but God is the one working in us as we work it out. The author of Hebrews uses this passage in Ezekiel 36 to be able to explain that that is what Christ has obtained, a ministry that is more excellent than the old as the covenant, because he's a better mediator. And acted on better promises. If the first covenant was faultless, there would not, not need to be, to be another. The issue is that underneath the old covenant, we could not get that brand new heart. Only through faith. Only through faith in the Spirit, in Christ. That we needed help. That our hearts were unwilling, our hearts were unable, our hearts were unchanged until the Spirit moved in our lives. What must I do to be saved? Nicodemus asks, well, you must be born again. If we merely were to live on Philippians chapter 12, and that's it, it would be like telling a person who's having a heart attack, well, make your heart beat faster. 
Start breathing. But is unable until that heart is changed by God. But the hope is not merely that God works. The hope in this passage is God works in us. Not with us, not external to us, but God works in us. That he gives us that new heart to be able to obey, to be able to work out with fear and trembling. The Spirit doesn't just blow in our hearts in the direction to be able to make us born again in justification, but it seeks to be able to, He seeks to be able to help us. As Jesus promises in John 14, the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance that all I have said to you, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here the Spirit is given to us that we might be able to work as God works in us to bring that day our hearts more encouraged in that day that draws near. The Spirit helps us to be able to work out our salvation. Paul says here, why? God works. Specifically, He works to will and to work for His good pleasure. That all of this happens for God's glory. As Paul finished the great Christ hymn in chapter 2, verse 11, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whereas Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Even as we think about Exodus and, and Pharaoh's heart, what a great blessing it is as we consider that God changes our hearts, that our hearts are not hard like Pharaoh's. For that's what we deserve. That's what we would only do on our own. But yet God gives us that new heart, ultimately for His good pleasure, His purposes. Whereas Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And then he lays out the great golden chain of salvation from before the foundation of the world to glorification, those links that are unbreakable because of what God has said and promised, all because of His purposes. That God is working on us, in us, for His purposes to bring about His outcome. That we don't lose heart, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Although our outer self is wasting away, our outer self needs more and more work, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
of your God works on us through these light momentary afflictions to be able to prepare us for that eternal weight of glory. That we don't look at the things that are seen, but we look on that which is unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That we look at this passage and we cannot but give thanks and praise to God for the work that He does in our lives. That we understand that there is no way that we could have salvation and obtain salvation, either justification, sanctification, or glorification on our own will or exertion. We cannot do anything of our own nature without the renewing spirit of the Spirit working in our lives to be able to change our hearts that we actually might be able to work. That it is God who works in us. And once we understand this glorious truth of the gospel, then we cannot but sing out with Paul as he does in Romans chapter 11, oh, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has the mind of God, who, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him, through him, to him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. There is no way we can stand and boast, oh, look how well we have worked on our salvation. All glory goes to Him because He is the one that enables us to be able to work. We work because He works. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise as we see a a daunting passage before us as we seek to be able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But yet, Lord, we have the glorious truth of the promise of the gospel that you have given to us where we lack and the need of that new birth to be born again through the Spirit, that you would receive all power, glory, and honor. Lord, help us to be able to encourage one another as we each seek to be able to look to our justification in Christ. Lord, as we encourage one another through our sanctification, but also as we long and hope for that day where we finally obtain that salvation and glorification. Help us, Lord, to be able to do so, that you would receive all glory, honor, and praise. We pray in Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.